Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And uh, we have a very special edition of the podcast for you today, joined as we are by not one, but two guests. Although um, I can't quite believe we've managed to speak to someone about this. Uh, James, who are we talking to today? Well, we've got we've got Tessa Dunlop, who's obviously incredibly important and is a brilliant writer and historian. Um, but I don't think Tessa will be the slightest bit annoyed with me for saying that we're also very excited because we've got the wonderful Betty Webb here as well, who's a former ATS in the Second World War, worked at Bletchley Park, um, later on at the Pentagon as well, um, has seen many things in her life. And um, Betty, it's a it's a it's a great privilege to have to have you joining us, and and Tessa to have you too. Welcome. Thank you very much for coming on. We've done incredible code breaking, haven't we, Betty? You're a week away from your 98th birthday, and getting on to Zoom. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I I almost gave up. <laughs> but with Tessa's Tess, help, we're all here, so that's good. It's, it's I, dare, I tell you what, one night, because uh, I was determined to see Betty one Sunday evening, and you know sometimes to land a Zoom, you have to identify traffic cones or bicycles, things like that? Yes. It's quite difficult if you don't see too well. How many, It was about an hour, wasn't it, Betty, if you, you just carried on identifying those traffic cones <laughs> until they finally gave in and admitted she wasn't a robot. <laughs> <laughs> so so tessa let's just start to explain how you and betty have become friends well years ago betty um i wrote a book about bletchley park and, and betty was a sort of nubile you're in your early 90s a spring chicken weren't you but you were still dr- taking on roundabouts in southern birmingham that's right and i went <laughs> we did a sleepover together it was brilliant fun and um, and we've stayed very firm friends. And now I'm writing another book. And actually, Betty, because she was also in the ATS, as you mentioned, the sort of um, female equivalent of the army in the Second World War. And, and she's like my AP. She's sort of like a researcher. She even got me a hotline to the Queen, um, the Queen's uh, former equerry. Who, who's that contact you've got, Betty? Well, I can't pronounce it. We called him T.A., but it's a very, uh, I think it's a Ghanaian name and I really can't pretend to be able to pronounce it. (laughs) Anyway, there we go. Betty knows everyone. She's dug dug up all these women, Maud 102 in Moseley. Loads. I mean, if you ever need a veteran, Betty's your woman. And very unusual age 98 to be good at tech. I know this is a kind of a Bletchley cliche because a lot of the girls, you didn't actually have to be that good at tech in the park always, did you, Betty? Oh, no. But she is now. But Betty, do you mind? Could, could we just sort of go go back to the beginning? I mean, you know, wh- where were you born and brought up, and 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 you know, how did you end up joining the ATS in the first place? Well, I was born and brought up in the wilds of Shropshire, where we lived in, in a, a lovely house. We didn't have a telephone or a car. Hardly anybody did in those days. 
So I had no. a very, uh, very different childhood from most people, I think, but it was a very pleasant one. And then uh, come the war, I decided... Oh, Betty, don't, don't forget to go to Germany oh. before the war. Oh, yes. Yes, I went to Germany on an exchange visit in 1937. It was a thing to do in those days. I lived with a religious family just outside Dresden. And uh, it was at the time when the Hitler regime was beginning to uh, make itself felt. Mm. And the family that I was living with were very religious people and they were quite clearly, although I was very young, didn't understand it all, but they were clearly very um, distressed by what they could see was coming. Oh, really? Interesting. So you'd been, what, 14 or 15 or something like that at that point? Uh, yes, I was born in 23, so I was 14. Mm. And you were there to, to learn German, to experience another country, a different culture? Uh... Yes, fortunately, I already spoke German because... <clears throat> we had um, Swiss and German help in the house when I was a child. My mother spoke fluent German and French, and she recommended that uh, we should, my sister and I, should learn German. So I, I spoke a fair bit before I went out there. What's quite interesting about your story is this Bletchley has this kind of reputation for posh women and, you know, some debutantes going and finishing off in places like Germany and France. But you weren't quite from that bracket, were, were you? It was quite a modest family you went and stayed with in Germany. And it was some your mum did it very much of her own accord, this setup. Absolutely, yes. She, she had been in Germany in the First World War uh, teaching um, music at a school near Leipzig. Gosh. How fascinating. Amazing. What took her there? I mean, just... I, you know, I unfortunately, I, I don't know for certain, um, but she certainly um, was offered this job near Leipzig and she travelled over on the day that the First World War broke out. Goodness me. Was that August, August the 3rd, I think, 1914? And uh, she said the train was full of soldiers, but nobody stopped her. <laughs> she just went on and she carried out a year's training at this school near Leipzig, and then had to, um, somehow or other, she got in touch with the American embassy in Berlin, and uh, they got her a safe passage home. It's incredible. Yeah, how amazing, Goodness. how amazing. That's absolutely extraordinary. And what would you, I mean... But she, and as a result, she didn't, she didn't want you to not know how to... Because she couldn't speak German, could she? Wasn't, wasn't oh, that one of the problems? Uh, well, she couldn't to start with, but she learned it as she went along. Hmm. And she wanted to make sure you could. That's right. Yes, that was her aim in life. Wow. And so we always had German and Swiss help in the house. And uh, I think my accent's fairly good, although my vocabulary isn't very long. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it? And, and Betty, when you got there, I mean, you, you, were, you were saying that the family you were with were very troubled about the way way things were going in Germany. But but I mean, what were your impressions? I mean, did you did you see lots of swastika banners and marching you yes. know, troops about the place did it was there a kind of a slightly sort of sinister feeling about it or did you not pick up on that uh well yes very good mind i was uh, very young and i didn't fully understand all these things but i i went to school with the daughters at the house and before every lesson before and after every lesson we were expected to stand up and give the hitler salute I didn't. I just waved. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. The family didn't like uh, the daughter had to go every weekend to a Hitler youth thing. That upset them. Didn't oh, it? yes, that's right. The Bede and Mädels. It was a, 
uh, Sunday morning thing. That, that, sorry, that's the Bund Deutsches Mädels, a band of German uh, girls. Right. And uh, these two, aged 13 and 11, I think, they disappeared every Sunday morning and never told us what they'd been doing. They came back to their parents and uh, were absolutely stum about everything they'd been doing. Do you know what happened to the family? I mean, did they get through the war? No, I don't, sadly. I, I didn't, um, well, we didn't uh, communicate after the war. I have no idea, mm. sadly. Goodness me. There's something about that, because you, you know when we, we obviously, because we're British, we predominantly look at the war from this side, but I've got really obsessed with, like, you know, the five million German deaths and half a million civilians in Germany killed. Like, what, what happened emotionally in that country? Do you know... Mm. And, and Betty, Betty's story, and there's a very touching photograph of you standing with those two young girls. You know, you know, we're just humans after all, you know, whipped up into different mm. political systems. It's just the humanity of the situation is horrific when you think about it. Yes, well, I mean, you know, as, as we all know, I mean, Germany paid a terrible, terrible price for its crimes earlier on in the war, didn't it? And for all that it did, and for, for Hitler's, you know terrible uh what, what he unleashed on the world i mean crikey the end of the war was was not a play you know you didn't want to be in germany did you funnily enough i know one of one of betty's fellow ats women who went out and was part of the british liberation army um she was in situated in germany just after the war and she said she was so struck by hundreds and hundreds of blonde almost feral children because of course the, the army of occupation yeah. was living in most of their homes she said very few men any that were left were in uh, prisoner of war camps but all these children because of the nazi breeding programs and all presumably many of whom grew up without dads yeah. extraordinary so betty when when the war when the war came um you were you were 16 if my math stands up what did yes. you did you think well right i'm going to need to join up contribute somehow straight away well, not straight away, because I was actually at a domestic science college in Shrewsbury. And uh, because of the, the, the news, which was getting worse by the day, four of us decided to leave our domestic science course and join up. Uh, I wanted to go into the Wrens, but there weren't any vacancies. So I joined the ATS and the others went into the other services. I, oh, one, one of them went into the Wrens, yes. And, uh, and that is how I came to go to Bletchley. Because on my CV, it uh, mentioned that I'm bilingual and uh, in German. And um, I had an interview with an intelligence corps officer in London. And the next thing I knew, I was on a train for Bletchley, about which I'd never heard. And I certainly didn't know what was going on there. <laughs> so what were your impressions of it when you first got there? Well, it was a bit frightening, actually, because I had to sign, read and sign the Official Secrets Act, mm. as we all did. And uh, that is a pretty formidable document, as some of you may know. Uh, and I realised that from then on, I was totally cut off from my family and, until 1975, as far as communication was concerned. Gosh, so did you, you, you got the train to Bletchley, you, you, you get off the station at Bletchley, you report to the wardroom. Is that, is that, is that the process? Uh, well, yes, I don't know. It's a long time ago. Uh, I remember... I was taken, first of all, to a civilian billet in a village nearby. And that was an experience in itself, because I was actually on the train with a girl who'd escaped from Brussels. And she was English. And she and I were um, put into a billet in New Bradwell, I think it was. And uh, 
first thing that <laughs> struck us rather violently was that not only did we share a room, we had to share a bed. <laughs> 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 Which was, doesn't sound much now, but it, well, it was a bit, um, a bit of a shock. <laughs> I, can, I can well imagine. So when was this? Was this 1942? Uh, 41. 41. September 41, yes. And then the following day, I was taken into the mansion at Bletchley um, to read and sign the Official Secrets Act. And that was when I realised uh, just how cut off I was going to be from my parents. I couldn't tell them where I was. We could, I could telephone them, but they couldn't telephone me. Do you think Betty, everybody, because we've, uh, Betty's got this friend Nanza who also had to sign the Official Secrets Act and she wore it much more lightly than you. She told her dad anyway, didn't she? It's finally come out age 98 that she was, well, I just had a chat with him. You know, whereas Betty, you absolutely swallowed it and did what it said right through to 75. To what extent do you think some of the veterans almost exaggerate the extent to which they held on to it, the secrecy of it, because they because the war's now so fated and because the way we remember it has become so important in our country's narrative? Well, I, I think it would have would depend on which particular department they, the girls were working in. Some would have felt sort of less involved in, in the, the heavy secret stuff. Mm. I, I don't know how other people saw it, but I made myself say to myself, Betty, you must do as you're told. You do not speak to anybody in, in the next room, never mind anywhere else. So, so, goodness, because you were because the work was very compartmentalized, wasn't it? So, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't know what you were. You, so, you were translating, is that right, Betty? You were translating? No, I wasn't. No, so, what were you doing? No, I only asked because you're bilingual. My assumption was, yes, well, you, you would expect that. That's fine. Don't worry. But my German uh, was not that brilliant. The major tester for whom I worked, his section, he was a brilliant linguist and uh, spoke perfect German, whereas uh, he gave me a test and he said, Betty, I'm very sorry, but you don't know enough about the, the more technical words, which I, I didn't, and I accepted that. So my first job was to register the signals which were coming in from our signal men and women around the country and indeed around the world. And these Morse code messages didn't show anything in the clear at all. All you could read was the date. The rest of it were groups of five letters and or figures. And uh, it was then up to the real code breakers to make sense of it. And then the messages would go to the linguists and then to a, a bunch of people who would sift them for um, a range of importance and, and where they had to go, whether they went straight to the prime minister or straight to the commanders in the field. I mean, that's a very broad thing, but that's roughly what what happened. And what, and what was life like there? I mean, was was it lonely or was it, I mean, did, did, you, did you enjoy the work? I was very happy because having been in the country all my early life, I was delighted to be with a crowd of people. I mean, it was like being at a university and everybody says that. And fortunately, to begin with, uh, we were billeted in uh, private houses in the villages uh, nearby. And I was lucky in the end getting a very nice one. I was very happy there and, and I had very good food because they not only had all our rations, but they, they had a garden and an orchard. So you can imagine uh, we had a, 
a choice of, of good food. And then the social life at Bletchley was also extremely good. We had professional people who ran things like the Bach Choir, an, an orchestra by another professional man. We had a madrigal society. Uh, there was a certain amount of sport available. So for me, it was uh, very enjoyable. Uh, the work was hard and long, but I didn't worry about that. I was young and fit and I enjoyed it. But would you agree, Betty, what's interesting is I spoke to about 15 women who worked at Bletchley and it very much depended what you expected from your life and where you came from as to whether you enjoyed Bletchley because you were a bit younger and you'd had quite a simple country life and you'd come from this dull what's a cooking school or whatever Bletchley was more mixed whereas I met Pamela she's still alive actually at 103 she doesn't do zoom um and and she's been an actress on the west end and was sort of rather grand a bit of a reluctant death so she found Bletchley a bit dull really you know she sort of Look down on it a bit. Well, having grown up not far from Bletchley, I can completely relate to that. Um, uh, my my mother used my mother used to have a job there, and I I would I would sometimes you know school holidays loiter in the town centre, and I can completely see why. If you're rather grand from used to the West End, you'd think, oh well, why have I ended? How have I ended up here? How this what this work can't be that important. <laughs> I think to be fair, town is slightly overegging it. But another one, a real blue blood, uh, Lady Jean Ford who was terrifying. I was going to say terrible, but she was terrifying. She absolutely loathed it. She thought she was going to be on this very exciting mission and her father, the Duke of Montrose, had clinched her the gig. Uh, She was one of the early ones in. And so she arrived thinking she was going to be piloted behind lines. She couldn't speak a foreign language, so that was never going to happen. Anyway, she just couldn't believe the fact she was ticking boxes. I mean, tick, tick, ticking, ticking, (laughs) she said. And then she sort of had a breakdown. You know, she was so bored and eventually was released. I think it was very unusual to be released from Bletchley because of all the secrecy. But eventually, I think they just had enough of her entitledness. And she was um, over six foot. And they just, yeah, she went off and worked for the Red Cross in the end. And, and finally, I got to sail the seas. I went to India. And it sort of lived up to her idea of a daring do war. What you need is someone like Betty, because Betty, you've, you don't quite show off enough. Before she got to the park, she, you did your training camp, the ATS training camp. You'd already been given a stripe. You were a pretty good soldier to get a stripe that early on. She, you were a lance corporal, weren't you? Because you told all the other girls how to behave. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a bit of a shock to see their table manners. <laughs> we, we had a very strict upbringing in that department. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. You know, if, if only it was like that today. El- elbows off the table. Elbows, yeah, yeah um, sit up straight. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So, Bring so, off your food to your mouth, not your mouth to your food. All right. So was one of the striking things about Bletchley how much it expanded during your time there? Because yes. Because it start because at the start of the war there's there's basically it's a very small cadre of people and by the end it's essentially a factory isn't it it's an it's an, an industrial effort with satellite sites and all sorts of stuff was that a thing that you because you're you know you're doing your work your eyes down on your work you've compartmentalized yourself from other people but you must have noticed that you're in the centre of something expanding and incredibly important did you have that sense working there um, yes that's absolutely right except that. But because of the restrictions, not being able to communicate with anybody outside your own office, I didn't have a complete picture of what was going on. I mean, what I'm telling you now is what I've learned since. 
yeah. um, the, the extent of, of the exercise. So um, as far as I was concerned, I just did my job. But, but the interesting thing for me was meeting all these different people. Uh, and they were a very mixed bag, understandably. And also you got promoted or you certainly got given a different job because you moved from being sort of a data inputter to becoming a paraphraser for the Japanese. Yes, I was promoted to staff sergeant before I went to America. Yes. Yes, I don't know who discovered that I was good at at paraphrasing. But uh, anyway, I wondered actually whether um, you'd be interested in an example of, of the paraphrasing. It's a yes, very simple definitely. one. It, mm, it is, absolutely. It, it would have been much longer than this. This says, border areas near Kohima, Imphal, expected to be attacked Monday. Now, I would reword that and say, early next week, attacks could be further west, maybe Kohima area. I mean, that, that is a very short and very simple one, but it was that sort of wording which we hoped if the Japs picked it up, they wouldn't realize immediately that we were cracking their codes. Does that Gosh, make so, sense? Yes, absolutely. So your, so your summation of, of, of what you know their intentions are is then essentially re recodified. Yes. So that if they're listening, because, because the Allies, the Allies, didn't get complacent about, as far as I understand it, didn't get complacent about the state of their own cryptology, that they knew that they, they may have been penetrated, they may have, that the Japanese and the Germans were attacking their ciphers the whole time. So so basically you're saying we kind of know, but we don't know for sure. So it, so they can't figure out where they've been compromised as well, because there's this endless sort of circle. That's right. This endless dance going on, isn't there? Yes, you've got it. He understood that more quickly than Michael Portillo did. Betty, I think Al Murray is it. We we talked to Al, Michael Portillo, and I think Al Murray's just nailed that much more quickly. I just thought I'd share that with you. Well, I just I, I, I can I'll confess I've been mugging up about Bletchley for this very chat. So um. <laughs> to be fair to Michael, he had heard it before. <laughs> well, then he should have got it even quicker, shouldn't he? <laughs> he was Defence Secretary. He must know about this stuff. <laughs> we have to take a short break right now. We'll be back in a second with Tessa and Betty. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Today we're talking to Tessa Dunlop and the astonishing Betty Webb. I forgot to say she's actually got an MBE, Betty, just in the... I don't know why we forgot to mention that at the beginning. But I think that came from another one of your Conservative friends, Sajid Javid. Yeah, she's a great friend of mine. Yeah. And here's my day at the oh, palace. Look. Oh, wonderful. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, how fantastic. There's that Prince Charles. Mm. Yes. Yes. yes, he was very, very easy. His, his first question was, did I know Baroness Trumpington? Which, of course, I, I did. Not very well, but I did know her. But but let's be honest, Betty. Some of some of the Bletchley girls are, were are a bit jealous of the attention she got, a little bit. Pat was. Do you remember Betty and I went and did a theatre tour, and Betty had just. Am I allowed to say this, Betty? We won't name names. But you'd just been given your MBE, and we were with five other Bletchley girls. And I said to all the others, you know, Betty's got an MBE, you know, and 
they were they they didn't manage to say well done quite as quickly as they should have done and it made me realize you know the body withers but the ego persists right till the very end healthy competition that's what it's all about would you agree betty <laughs> she's laughing you can't you can't hear her but i promise she's laughing because it's quite competitive isn't it the the vet you know it's nice to be What's the word I'm looking for? Nice to be recognised for your work. Yes, but I, I must explain to the gentleman that um, the MBE was not for my wartime work. It, the citation reads, for remembering and promoting the work of Bletchley Park, oh. which I still do. I mean, I, I'm always at it, aren't I, Tessa? <laughs> you are at it, yeah. And, that, and that's why there was a little bit of, I think, hefty competition around who's the best vet you know, but since then, Pat's become a légende d'honneur, so it's all yes. okay. Oh, well, thank, well, thank, thank goodness, goodness for that. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big relief. Betty, <laughs> what, what, one thing I meant to ask you, you know, we, what, where were your parents during the war? I mean, did, did they stay at home or was your father caught up in it as well? My father was caught up uh, because he, he'd been in India in the First World War, mm-hmm. but he became a home guard officer for the Ludlow area. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you know Ludlow in Shropshire, yes, I just do. south yes. mm. south of, of Shrewsbury, and that's where I spent most of my childhood. It was a lovely part of the world. So he so he was in the Home Guard till you know it packed up in 1944, I suppose. But but and, and otherwise was sort of carrying on with what he was doing before. Yes, that's right. Oh yes, he continued. He was with Lloyd's Bank, and uh, uh, but he had a very big area uh, for the Home Guard. I don't remember exactly where, but it was pretty big, and. Uh, very difficult to recruit people who were able to give the time to be in the home guard. Bearing in mind you're working with farmers and smallholders, yes, no, so they couldn't give up a lot of time, but they did. So Betty, once you were done at Bletchley, you you, you then went to the Pentagon. Is that is that right? Yes, I did. To my astonishment, I, I went out in. Uh, <laughs> well, something happens every day. Anyway, uh, yes, I did. And uh, it was a, a bit of a, a mess up over my transport. I was meant to be going by ship and uh, helping a Jamaican girl who'd been in the ATS in London. Um, anyway, I don't know what happened, but uh, it ended up with them hurrying around and getting me a seat on a Sunderland flying boat. And I went from Pool Harbour um with uh, I think it was about 10 other people and uh, we came down in Ireland where we had dinner uh, I was ill all the way and <laughs> then we went on to, <laughs> we went on to Newfoundland a place called Botwood and had breakfast there and then uh, went on down to Baltimore and then by train from Baltimore to Washington and this was just at the end of the war, wasn't it? So yes. you, the, the, at the end of the war in Europe. That's right. The Pacific War was still going on. Yes, thank you. Yes, I forgot to say that. Yes. Um, then, of course, um, it was a very short stay um, because the uh, war ended on the 6th of August, I think I'm right in saying. 15th. And so my job came to an end. Hmm. And what were you doing? What were you doing for the Americans? Well, the, I was doing the, the same job. I was doing this. Right. Uh, um, Paraphrasing. Paraphrasing in the Pentagon uh, with uh, thirty-two thousand other people. <laughs> they, thirty-two thousand. Goodness yes, me! I don't, I don't know what they were doing, but I. <laughs> <laughs> and Betty, um, it was brand new. The Pentagon still had sort of cling film on it, didn't it? Cellophane. I mean, it was a really, really new building. Oh yes, very much so. 
And one exciting day, we um, had a visit from General Eisenhower. How wonderful. Because he'd finished in Europe, and he came over to the Pentagon, and the quadrangle in, in the center is so big, he was able to come in on a tank with an entourage of troops. Gosh, and what did you make of him? Uh, well, I didn't speak with him. I just smiled at him as he went by. <laughs> he was looking pretty dour, actually. I think he was... Uh, um, well, he's probably very tired, for one thing. Well, I think everyone and, was very um, worried about Japan, weren't they, and about how long the war yes, might go. No one was absolutely. quite sure until the last minute that the atomic bombs would be usable. So um, I think everyone was a bit, bit braced about going on into 1946 and having to actually invade Japan and all the rest of it. So <laughs> if he was yeah. looking a bit long in the face, that might be why. <laughs> but can we just... Uh, you were the only ATS girl, I think, in the I Pentagon, was, weren't, yes, weren't you? yes. Mm. Again, she's a special. You're spe I, I know I'm a bit biased, but why, why I'm always interested as to why Betty was selected. You know, they could have found a paraphraser in America, but no. Well, they no I can tell you, Betty's always wondering why she was chosen to go. <laughs> 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 no, seriously, I, I don't know why. There were a lot of other English people there, and we uh, used to have nice parties with the our American associates. We had a very good time, actually. So you enjoyed Washington, did you? Oh, very much. Lovely place. And, of course, there was very little food rationing yes. compared with London. Yeah, mm. oh, of yeah. course. But an interesting thing, uh, one of the American army girls who uh, had to check me in every morning in the Pentagon, she said one day, Betty, did you really have bombs on London? Now, what does that say? I don't know. I never discovered what sort of communication they had with Europe, but it sounds as if it was very little. Oh, it's unbelievable that, you know, that a city would be bombed. Maybe that's it. She couldn't get her head around it. No. Um, gosh, how extraordinary. Isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So and then... Sorry, no, no, Tessa, no, go, go. It's just that I... Betty paints a really vivid picture of when suddenly it's the bombs have been dropped, talking of bombs, in Japan. And, and the way they celebrated the Americans, it's pretty ostentatious, wasn't it? Very, yes. So it went completely crazy. Um, I remember clearly the um, whole city uh, fixed their horns for about 24 hours on the, on the cars. You've never <laughs> heard such a racket in all your life. <laughs> Gosh. How amazing. And steaks. steaks oh, yes, steaks. Sort of that's right. Thank you, Jess. So that's right. We hadn't had a lot of meat, but that day the steaks appeared. <laughs> <laughs> yes, gosh, it must be such a contrast from being in Bletchley, I should think, where it's all... Absolutely, yes. Uh, yes, it was. <laughs> amazing. And it was a bit rubbish going home, wasn't it? A bit flat going back to, well, flat Britain. Well, yes, of course. Uh, we didn't know what, what was ahead, and I was rather anxious to go and see my parents. Um, the worst part was the journey back because we came by sea right. in a former troop, the, the Aquitania, which had been turned into a troop ship. It was pretty rough, I can tell you. And so was the sea. I was ill the whole way back. And it took four days. Goodness. So you arrived back in. So when did you get back to back to England? Was that still in 1945? So that was just after the end of the war, was it? Yes, it, it was in... Uh, uh, I think the date was September. We had we had to wait a while to get a passage, but um, and I, I helped. Uh, I left the Pentagon and went to an, another British Army um, set up quite near the White House, actually. And uh, that was a case of uh, you know sort of tidying up and getting rid of things. Mm. 
So then you get, but you go back home in England. And then what did you do with yourself? I had had a rest at home. <laughs> <laughs> and well deserved too. Then after that, I got a job. Of course, the difficulties. Um, uh, there were a lot of difficulties getting jobs, mainly because you couldn't explain to a prospective employer what you'd been doing. Oh, gosh, so what would you course. say, Betty? Yeah. What would you say? Well, I, I just had to say, I'm sorry, I'm not at liberty to tell you. And of course, there were some rather strange expressions on their faces. No. Um, <laughs> God, I'd never considered that. No, well, that's how it was. And of course, it must have been very much more difficult, I think, for men who'd been at Bletchley. Not that there were very many men. We outnumbered them three to one. But come on, Betty, it was also hard for women because you didn't get married for a long time and you had to fend for yourself and the priority was for men, jobs for the boys, wasn't it, really? Yes, that's right. And, and let's get, I'm going to wax out here with Betty's big feminist moment because you, being the soldier that you are, you end up going back into the TA and you push for equal pay. I love this bit. So in the war, they're all paid, you know, even if they do the same job as a man, they're getting paid a third less as one, uh, uh, as one ATS veteran. What do you expect us? Of course we got paid less. We didn't think anything of it. You know, but by the way, when was it the 1960s? You're sending letters off to your boss saying this isn't good enough. What happens? Well, I, I, that was when I was recruiting in Birmingham. Yes, um, I don't remember. I think something was done about it eventually, but I left in 69, so I don't, uh, I'm not. But you write a letter, don't you, or something? Oh, yes, I did. I wrote a very strong letter about it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and were they responsive? Um, yes, I think they were in the end, yes. But interesting to me that you did that in the 60s, but you wouldn't have dreamt of doing it in the middle of a war in the 40s. Oh, it's, Lord, a, no. it's a very different Absolutely world. Absolutely not, no. And and my pay when I went to Bletchley uh, was, uh, I think it was 10 and 6 a week. Yes, it's not very much, is it? Um, um, just to go back to Bletchley, Betty, I mean, you know, you were saying you weren't long at hard, but that was fine. But, I mean, what was there a kind of sort of... Were you doing shifts or, or how, how did it work? I mean, what was your working day? In the main, uh, there was a shift system, um, eight to four, four to midnight, midnight to eight. I did it for a while, but it depended. I don't, well, I'm not sure what it depended on. Sometimes they asked me to do shifts, other times they didn't. But um, I did uh, find the shift system very, very tiring, mainly because it's difficult to suddenly be awake all night and sleep during the day. Yeah. yeah. And how did you get get from your billet into, I mean, did you have a bicycle or did oh, you the, walk? Or? Uh, well, I had a bicycle. That's another story. But <laughs> in the main, uh, there was a, a fleet of old buses and they were old. They didn't always uh, stand up to the journeys, but they went round the villages picking up people who were billeted in civilian houses until a camp was built within walking distance of the park for the uh, army and the air force. So they brought everybody in from the civilian billets. I think it was a financial thing, really. I don't know. But anyway. And suddenly it's like, because the ATS, your ATS journey is weird because you go to this sort of quasi civilian park and almost forget, even though you're wearing uniform, that you're in the ATS, and then suddenly you're banged into barracks at the end of the war and have to do all your duties yes, and your yes, drill Yes, that's right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Polish the floors. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Be Betty, you've kept, you, you, you kept this secret the whole time. In the 70s, when news of the ultra-secret 
came out and you have MRD foot and people like that writing about it. What? How did you feel about the fact that the, that, that suddenly everyone knew that this secret was out? Was it a relief or were you were you surprised that because it, it, it you know it became a massive story and people that wrote successful books about it how did you feel about the the, the you know suddenly this thing's been revealed um, strangely um i just didn't want to talk about it yet i kept everything to myself for so long it was quite difficult to open up yeah yeah i can imagine i don't, I don't know why but i i didn't for a very long time until um I can't remember the exact date, but uh, one of our uh, very uh, important people, he was uh, a major in the uh, intelligence corps and signals, and uh, he organized reunions for any Bletchley person who wanted to go. It was a weekend event, usually in Bedford, and uh, there we had gatherings of former employees of Bletchley who were encouraged to talk about what they'd been doing. And so uh, we gradually built up a picture of uh, of the whole picture, if you like. Right, goodness, because you just because you didn't know. I mean, no, this is the thing I find absolutely extraordinary. You literally don't know what's happening in the building next to you. It's it, it well, even the, the room, the next, room to next to you. Yeah, never yeah. mind the yeah. building. The room yeah, next the, the to room. you. Yeah, the room. Yeah. <laughs> and presumably that means you don't know who anyone is either. Or I mean, or you're presumably, or are you allowed to socialise with other people? Oh, we socialised. Yes, that wasn't a problem. And and we had a great deal of entertainment put on for us there, such as the, the Bach Choir, the uh, uh, Magical Society. It was a gramophone club, uh, concerts by a professional violinist. Oh, yes, uh, that side of it was extremely good. It was very well balanced, in my view. I mean, you'd have to be very good at small talk, wouldn't you? Because you can't talk about work. Um... No, but you can talk about... Um, Talk about music or whatever yeah, your interest yeah, is. Yeah. yeah. And were you musical? Are you musical? Yes, I played the piano and the violin, but um, not any uh, uh, great professionalism. But I, I do, and I also used to be in a choir. Mm. Um, and you went up to London a bit. You dated a Canadian because he wanted to marry you, didn't he? Uh, Tessa, you're naughty, yes. <laughs> well, he did. <laughs> well, he, uh, it was a proper introduction through my father's friend who was in San Francisco, and uh, uh, he was the consul out there. Anyway, we, as I say, we were introduced through uh, correspondence and met up, but he was at Biggin Hill. And, of course, uh, uh, well, we did meet up occasionally, but it wasn't very easy. But there's a rather a beautiful story, if I'm allowed to say this, where his children, much later in life, found your name all in his diary. Yes, and got in touch. And uh, they got yes. in contact. I had, yeah. I had an email from one of them recently. Mm. You, I think you were a bit of a heartbreaker, if I'm honest. There's quite a good photo I'll share with you of Betty back in the day. Although you're looking pretty good this morning. We've got the privilege. Obviously, it won't happen in the podcast, but you look... Delightful, but it might be because you're offset by two men <laughs> <laughs> on the Zoom. And also, just just quickly, uh, if we can, uh, what I find really interesting about the the war narrative is obviously you know women were all non-combatants unless they're an SOE or something extraordinary, um, and, and and men, especially in the fifties. I was listening to one of your podcasts last night that those war films in the fifties. It was very much as we sort of hitting the imperial abyss in Britain. We're bigging up this masculine, brave Second World. 
war. And women, you know, even if you're not a Bletchley and can't speak about it, you're pretty much written out of the war narrative. And yet there's this extraordinary thing where women tend to live longer than men. So suddenly these seven million, there were seven million women, un, um, unprecedented. I think uh, no other belligerent came near to the numbers of women that we uh, conscripted and, and, and volunteered into our war effort. Suddenly it's their kind of moment in the sun because uh, you're still alive, a lot of you, and you're, and you're able to talk. And also because of the, the swing of history, people are more interested in those um, I suppose some would say secondary stories. So I've loved the fact that Betty made it onto the front cover of National Geographic as the war veteran. Mm. You know, suddenly we're seeing it as a war with both sexes. Yeah, that's no, fantastic. I completely agree with you. Yeah, yeah. And given that, and given that, that the sort of um, how Bletchley has very much become a a, a sort of central story about the, the Second World War from a thing no one knew about. You know, that that, that in the fifties, you this. This was not a component of anyone's view of the Second World War. It's it's Dan Buster's to the longest day to the Battle of Britain, and and the intelligence picture isn't part of it at all, is it? That 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 that's also the also the case. Yeah. Do you think Betty? One of the reasons we like it is because nowadays it, it's sort of seen as bloodless. You know, it's about outsmarting the enemy, not bludgeoning the enemy to death, although it did involve that, of course. I think something about our sanitised world we live in that the Bletchley narrative sits comfortably with. I wonder what you think about that, Betty. You know, nowadays people are sort of fr more frightened of talking about killing each other, but Bletchley's about outsmarting the opposition. It's slightly different. Oh, gosh, Tessa, that's a difficult one. I don't know. Um, I'd like to keep you on your toes. Yes. <laughs> um, I, th I think you're right. I, I, I think Tessa's right, Betty. I think that, that's exactly what it is. But, but And because most of the people at Bletchley were women, it's about that intellectual idea that you are, you are do you're doing the thinking rather than necessarily than the... Because because after all, aspects of the prosecution of the Second World War are to some people unpalatable, like area bombing, whereas this... You know, it leads to the invention of the computer and so on. It's seen as clean. Yes, yeah, yeah, or, or much cleaner. Well, and yeah. also it's, it's, yeah. it's seen as a very successful part of the British war effort, isn't it? So I think that's the, that's yeah. the other factor about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you gentlemen been to Bletchley? I certainly have. Yep. And, and I mean, how does it affect you from the point of view of, um, um, well... History, obviously. Well, well, the thing I the thing I was struck by is about is the industrial scale of it, and also and also that 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 the the expansion that must have gone on, that the, the people having to manage that, to 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 find the right people, to recruit the right people, to organise them, to be a, a, it to be a flexible enough organisation to respond to, you know, changes in 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 German code practice. And also the demands from the three services are all asking for different things in different ways all at once. The code breaking aside, which is sort of incredibly clever, the people managing it, how on earth they did that um, uh, under so much pressure is a thing that always, always sort of takes my breath away, as well as the sort of intellectual sort of people like Bill Tutt working out the Tunny Code on paper is the most extraordinary thing. That the, the, that man's mind is is beyond my comprehension, certainly. Let alone building lots of bombs and building lots of, and building Colossus. It's the blend of incredibly hard graft and then very clever people being given the space to be clever and be unconventional. And it's it's a fascinating place. And and you do get the sense of that when you visit the the site, which, as you say, is like a campus. 
Oh, Betty, we need to mention when it's opening up. It, Betty's very big on the park. I don't think the park would exist in its current form without her. And I think it's opening up post-COVID on the 17th of May. Yes, brilliant. it is. Yes. So please go and buy your reasonably priced tickets <laughs> online immediately. <laughs> and come and listen to us online. We're doing, you can see us online with Pat and it's quite competitive. Pat was a Y station listener and that's on Fane. I'm just getting that in there, Betty, that we've done our... We did, uh, we, we, You've done we your plugging your own gig. Right? Technically right. landed too. Yeah, your indeed, gig on your gig. On your gig. And the Bletchley thing, because I also, as an avid listener of your podcast, Germany had their uh, code breaking in five different centres. We had ours in one you know so again we had this very centralized it was a, a much more effective way of uh, uh, decrypting your enemy communications if you have it all in one space and the germans never managed that um, and i think that made a big difference and it also of course makes for a great narrative it's like the perfect agatha christie kind of um you know confined space in which you can then cook your histories and stories and hollywood movies uh, uh, the thing that i heard was that the germans had a meeting to decide whether or not we were breaking their codes and at the end of the day they said we couldn't do it yes i've heard that amazing an incredible story <laughs> Well, Betty, it's been fantastic to talk to you uh, and Tessa. So oh. thank you, for Tessa, for your part in, in fixing thank this you all so up. Much. And, yeah. um, you know, what, what a privilege, what a treet to, 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 to meet you and talk to you. Absolutely. She's cool. She's, a, she's 98 next week. Yes, well, happy birthday Wonderful. next week. Well, Many happy returns. Happy birthday for next week. Not next yeah. week, May the 13th. Oh, sorry, <laughs> next month. It's all right. Well, happy <laughs> birthday for May the 13th. Older than I am. <laughs> That's the day that the Axis forces surrendered in Tunisia in 1943. Oh, well done. There you are. <laughs> well done. That's a good note to end on. James gets the brainy prize, the, the swat in the corner. <laughs> it's funny watching you two, you know. Al's all the kind of, you like the enthusiastic geek, you know, and James is more the sort of cerebral professor. When you have them both in vision, I'm just yeah. letting your regular podcast listeners it's know. It's not normally like that. Well, I, it's not normally like uh, that. Uh, I resemble that remark. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Betty, thanks. I hope I've answered your questions um, suitably. You but have. You certainly more than, have. More than. Most enjoyable hour. Oh, well, it's been, well, thank it's, you it's so been lovely much. for us, so thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to uh, Betty Webb and Tessa Dunlop. We'll see you all again soon. Cheerio. Cheerio. Goodbye. Cheerio.